I think a lot of times healthcare providers tend to blow off black women. Um, and I'm not sure why. You know, you hear about people thinking black women are intimidating or um, you hear about the angry black woman and things like that. No, these are just women who want to be heard. These are women who feel like they've said it once and you're not listening. So they're going to speak up and advocate even more. That doesn't mean now ignore them all the more. It means pay attention to what they're saying. Have you ever felt a stirring in your heart that you were called to do something greater than you are doing now? Or respond to a burning desire in your heart? Or maybe make a difference in a particular area or someone's life? Or is there a restlessness that stirs in your soul? Well, I'd like to welcome you to When the Moment Chooses You podcast. I am your host, Charlene Johnson, also known as Coach Charlene. This podcast will engage in compassionate, courageous conversations because I believe in your personal development, creating and inspiring destiny moments because every heartbeat truly matters. You will hear stories of change agents and trailblazers that dare to dream and not accept the status quo. Through hearing these stories, I truly believe that it will reignite the flame of passion and move you from just talking and thinking about it to actually being about it. We are all on our journeys of self-discovery. So be empowered as we inspire you to tap into the highest expression of yourself. Let's join the podcast. Greetings and welcome to When the Moment Chooses You. I am your host, Coach Charlene, and oh my gosh, this is going to be a very exciting series. First of all, I have Miss Tiffany here with me, Dr. Tiffany, and she was the prior guest that was on the show, and she got so many likes and just acknowledgments for being on the show, and I wanted to invite her back for Black Maternal Health Week. And so we're going to be unpacking some really good, juicy stuff. So Tiffany, welcome back. Thank you. So thank you for having me back. Yeah. So you guys, I felt like I needed to do something about Black Maternal Health Week, first of all, because I am a Black woman and I have had some challenges uh, when I birthed my children. And so I really wanted to acknowledge stories and information and anything that can help us to be better people. First of all, by acknowledging that there is a problem. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about. And now Tiffany, she's kind of, I mean, I heard her talk about it when we spoke. And so that's why I really wanted her to come back to the show. But I want to start out with this quote. I was, I did a, my master's paper on dismantling racism and perinatal services. And really it spoke to the communication issues that we have. And so I found the quote, and um, I think it's by, let me see, her name is Dr. Um, Barfield. I hope I said that right. But she said, a maternal death is more than just a number or part of a count. It's a tragedy that leaves a hole in the whole family. And so that was so profound because I found uh, she had a picture of this little girl in there, and uh, someone had drew a chalk figure, and the little girl was in a little ball. Uh, inside like the mommy that was kind of no longer there but it made me think about how unfortunate it is for children to have to grow up without a mother for husbands yeah. to have to be without a wife for an uncle or oh I mean it is definitely a state of emergency that's what I believe and we know that black mamas 
have the worst statistics in the world, really. I mean, really here in the United States, I'm focusing on because we can do better. So Tiffany, talk to me about this conversation. First, tell us a little bit about yourself real quick, and then let's jump into this conversation and see where it leads us. Sure. So um, I have been a labor and delivery nurse for 18 years now. I no longer work at the bedside, but I do still work in women's services in a hospital setting. And I know the statistics all too well. Um, It's very interesting to see what's gone on over the last two decades in this country, because where you would think we would be doing better, we're actually worse off than we were 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Um, Reports are coming out. The numbers are startling. And even though there's been a lot of information in the media and people are at this point well aware of black maternal mortality and morbidity statistics, the numbers just keep worsening. And so you think, what's going on? Are we doing a better job of reporting or are we actually seeing more deaths, more morbidity, um, you know, chronic illness after having a baby? What, what's happening? Right. I know. And it's so tragic. And um, I'm telling you, everybody, I work in um, perinatal and I've talked to so many women, black women in particular, that have had challenges with this very thing in childbirth. So tell us what type of work are you doing, Tiffany, to, you know, kind of put your imprint into this? Well, my work is actually really nice right now, actually. I uh, am working in quality, something I hadn't done before, but I'm, I'm really enjoying it. And so my job is to look at all the data and all the statistics at my hospital. I actually do the analysis myself and I look at various cases based on the outcomes of those cases. So I'm looking at every chart for a birthing person who had hypertension. And I specifically look at those who had severe hypertension when they got to our unit. I'm looking at every case of someone with diabetes, every case of someone who had a postpartum hemorrhage, a third or fourth degree laceration. Um, It runs the gamut. I have about 14 different metrics that I look at regularly. And I look at the stats, but I also dig a little bit deeper and look at trends. So I'm treating various physicians who have high rates of primary cesarean section uh, with with first time moms. I'm trending the nurses who are, um, you know, maybe not following protocol as it relates to national standards and national practice. Um, I'm looking at all of these things so that I can figure out ways to intervene. And so my job is really that of gathering the data and then taking that data and creating programming around it so that we can change our negative outcomes. Wow, that's pretty powerful. So have you been able to um, ascertain some programs that can actually help? I actually have. So one of the things that we're doing right now, and this is for all moms, not just black moms, but of course they're affected. um, We are looking at what we call NTSV rates. So Um, It's an acronym that stands for noliparous, or that means first time mom, you've never had a baby before. So noliparous term, so she is 37 weeks or greater gestation. Singleton, so she's not carrying multiples, twins or triplets. Vertex, 
Vertex means the baby is head down. So we don't have a breech baby. Um, we don't have a baby that's in transverse position. All these things together tell us that this woman should be able to have a vaginal birth. There's no reason outside of medical indications why she should not be able to have a vaginal birth. The national standard or the national goal is that every hospital would have an NTSV rate of less than 25%. So nationally, we want one, only one out of every four first-time moms who come in to have a delivery to deliver via cesarean section. We want yes. those other three women to be able to have vaginal births. Unfortunately, everybody doesn't meet that goal. I have seen numbers as high as 66%. Oh, my goodness. Out of three first-time moms coming in wow. having cesarean sections. That is an astronomically high number. That just should not be. And so I have implemented programming at our hospital, and we're doing things in the region as well around making sure we're sticking to um, CMQCC guidelines. So California is doing a fabulous job with uh, maternal health care. We are following their lead to make sure we are inducing people at the right time, making sure that when we induce a woman, her cervix is ready for this induction. And if it's not ready, we're going to take correct measures so that we can soften the cervix before we give her Pitocin. We're making sure that our nurses are trained in different positioning to help um, with the descent of the fetus, to help with dilation of the cervix, and just to make sure that we can get that mom her vaginal delivery. We're educating our physicians, some who've been practicing, you know, 20, upwards of 20 years, and they're just used to doing what they've always done. And so educating them on new guidelines, new practices, new research that comes out so they can change their practice and sort of help us move toward uh, more vaginal deliveries. And it's been working. I've seen some great numbers. Um, I've seen a lot of physicians, you know, the light bulb will come on in their heads and they'll go, oh, I didn't know that this was a thing before. Now I understand. Um, I've seen nurses get really, really excited about having vaginal deliveries and trying really hard to advocate for the patients so that they get those vaginal deliveries and don't have to go back for a C-section. I've just seen some wonderful things in the last few months. I'm really proud of it. Yeah, absolutely. I um, I mean, the organization that I work for, they are doing amazing things with vaginal delivery, supporting vaginal births. And, and so, um, and keeping that C-section rate so um, so low. Um, I'm wondering though, Tiffany, what do you think are the causes of this number? Because, you know, the latest research shows that it actually has worsened for black mamas in particular. What are some of the things I know we know about social determinants, but what do you think is going on here? So there's a, a couple of things. I mean, the, the leading causes of maternal mortality in the U.S. are cardiovascular disease or various cardiovascular condition. Um, sepsis or infection and postpartum hemorrhage. And so these are things that if you think about it, um, especially for the sepsis and the postpartum hemorrhage, there really shouldn't be any difference between a black woman and a non-black woman. There shouldn't be any genetic, you know, or even lifestyle differences that would cause black women to have higher rates of sepsis or to die from higher rates of sepsis or to have higher rates of postpartum hemorrhage or to die from postpartum hemorrhage. You could 
sort of debate whether or not there's a difference uh, with cardiovascular disease. And that's not it's not a biological difference, but it is very much environmental. Um, I've seen some work. I wish I would see more work on the relationship between stress, specifically um, stress caused by implicit bias, um, stress caused by explicit bias or very overt bias um, that black women deal with in the workplace, um, in their families sometimes, and just, you know, throughout their communities that can raise a person's blood pressure. I can understand that. But, you know, why we're dying from infection rates, why we're dying from postpartum hemorrhage, it's really a lack of um, care on the part of the medical and nursing staff. What we see is delayed care or women who are denied care. Uh, and we just need to be much more on it, if you will. We need to pay attention to the signs and symptoms. We need to uh, believe women when they say, hey, I'm having a pain that I didn't have before. Something doesn't feel right. Or, you know, I'm feeling a little faint after this delivery. It's not, oh, well, that happens to everyone. No, no, no. Figure out what's going on with her. Sit her down, take her blood pressure, check her bleeding, make sure her fundus is firm. These are the things we need to do. And I think I think a lot of times healthcare providers tend to blow off black women. Um, and I'm not sure why. You know, you hear about people thinking black women are intimidating or um, you hear about the angry black woman and things like that. No, these are just women who want to be heard. These are women who feel like, They've said it once and you're not listening. So they're going to speak up and advocate even more. That doesn't mean now ignore them right. all the more. It means pay attention to what they're saying. Yeah, because, you know, you actually start, you become silenced in a sense. I think about the scenario for my daughter. My daughter is, um, you know, a little bit heavier. And so when she goes to her provider, it's always a challenge because she's not hurt because it's almost like, you know what, you need to lose weight without even going into like what's really going on. And um, I actually witnessed um, an interaction, didn't say who I was or anything, just went and sat in with her. And I mean, the person never even like hardly looked at her. It just listened to what was going on, putting things in the chart. And I mean, nothing actually happened. So like for my daughter, for instance, a younger um, black woman, she's like done with the healthcare system almost, you know, so I can see how people, uh, actually need to go to the doctor, but then they don't go to the doctor because you're not going to be listened to anyway. And it also takes me back to another experience I had when I had my um, I had my daughter. I think it was when I had my daughter. Yes, it was. Um, but I was at an organization and they, um, so, you know, I thought, okay, this is no sweat. I already had my first baby. I got this. Yeah. And mm -hmm. so now, okay, I'm just going to say I'm a wimp when it comes to pain. <laughs> You and I. <laughs> yeah, girl. I'm like, um, uh, anesthesia before I even get to the hospital. I need you to be in my room. I'm running there. I need you to just pop that epidural in. <laughs> but anyway, oh. so we were, uh, so I'm like progressing and it's just horribly painful. And uh, the nurse at the time, she was like, okay, okay, I'm going to get it. I was like, look, I need an epidural. I already said that I wanted that in my birth plan. I need that when I hit four centimeters. And so I was like five centimeters and it was just getting worse and worse and and she would leave and she wouldn't come back for like 
45 minutes and I'm like pressing on the call light. And then I finally, my husband looked at me and he was like, oh, Lord, we got to get something going on here. And she comes back. Okay. Yeah. I'll be right back. And so she finally comes about two hours later. And two then, hours. um, yeah, but see, I was so passive. I didn't advocate for myself at all. And so I didn't really know how to do that at that time. I mean, it was like over 25 years ago, but still when you're quiet and you're shy, you're not as apt to, you know, advocate like you really should. And then she finally came back and, um, I think I got an epidural, but like 15 minutes later, of course I delivered. <laughs> and so, um, but that lack, and I felt the disregard for my well, voice. I felt that it was like, she was, I can tell, you know, you can tell when people are talking to you and they have bias and that they don't even want to be bothered with you. And Absolutely. so, uh, and so I've heard so many stories like that. Um, and so I think that's why I have such a passion to really, I mean, talk about the tough stuff. We got to talk about this and we need to do something about it because just like we said, this, those, the loss of a mom is a loss of a nation, quite honestly. Because she Absolutely. cares for so many people. So um, have you experienced any of that or know in your world um, any types of disregard or miscommunication or lack of uh, listening to people in labor and delivery in particular? I have. Um, I've experienced it myself as a patient. And I've also experienced it, you know, watching my patients. So I've experienced it as a nurse. And I will tell you that nurses have to do a better job because oftentimes we are silent bystanders and we watch this level of obstetric violence and trauma that is happening to people and we don't speak up. There's a lot of times where you'll have nurses who um, still work in a very patriarchal type of environment. And so the physician, you know, it has the last say and the nurse is sort of under him or her and they just silently stand by and kind of take orders. We have to get out of that mindset. I remind my colleagues all the time, physicians are not in your chain of command. You do not work for them. They're not your bosses. They're your colleagues. And so you don't have to be afraid to speak up. If you are afraid to speak up, come to my office. I will gladly go yes. and say whatever I need to to whoever needs to hear it. Um, call me at any time of the day or night. You know, I'm trying to encourage, especially the younger nurses that I know, those who've only been in the field a year or two, maybe three, encouraging to them to build up their confidence for the sake of the patient. Because a lot of times we are their advocate, even when patients advocate for themselves. If we're able to go in and say something to our medical colleagues, a lot of times it gets across a little better. They'll listen to us. Right. Um, and so that's something that, you know, we we really have to do. I've had experiences in healthcare where I've gone in and, of course, I don't say I'm a nurse. Uh, I never tell anybody my name is doctor anything. Right. Um, you know, go in. And I've had experiences where a resident physician told me that I was not in pain. Now, this was not during a birth. I don't have uh, biological children, but I broke my wrist a few years ago and went to the emergency room, told them when I got there that my wrist was broken. And they were like, oh, we'll see. We'll, we'll do some x-rays. No, no. I know my wrist is broken. You don't need to do x-rays. Um, and when the resident came in to reset it, 
he said, okay, we're going to give you uh, a little lidocaine for the pain. I said, lidocaine isn't going to help me, sir. My wrist is broken. You're about to reset it. And he said, no, it'll be fine. And I said, no, I'm going to need something more than that. And he said, just trust me. I said, go ahead and give me the lidocaine. He said, I will come back in about 20 minutes and then we'll reset it. And when he came back, it was extremely painful. And so I was yelling and telling him to stop. And he was telling me, oh, it doesn't hurt. And I was like, wow, serious right now? First of all, get your hands off of me. Right. Because I asked you to stop, you know, and I need you to listen to me and believe me when I tell you that I'm in pain. Thankfully, I was there with my friends who were with me when I broke my wrist. And two of them are fairly tar- large, um, tall black men. And one of them said, hey, she said she's in pain. You know, stop. Give her more medicine. And thankfully, because of them, he stopped. He gave me Twilight, which I asked for in the first place. And they went ahead and reset my wrist. But I cannot imagine feeling that over and over again while being in labor having someone come in and tell you, I'm going to do a vaginal exam. No, no, you're going to ask me if you can check my cervix. Yes. Having someone force your legs open so that they can um, do an amniotomy or break your water. Mm -mm. That's not how we do things. And I see it happen a lot. Um, I myself have seen it and not said anything. Those days are long gone. Right. you know, I'm trying to get other nurses to to really speak out and speak up for patients. Yeah, you know what? That's I mean, that is how we're going to really make the difference. And, you know, I had to even, you know, as I was going through and doing my my QI project and things for my master's program, I had to even like check myself with certain things because I had this bias in my head that's spinning around too, wanting to try to come back. But really it took a lot of self-awareness and to be able to catch yourself and to be authentically present for that patient, regardless of what you see, whether you see tons of tattoos or, you know, whatever it is, you know how we start judging people before we even know who the person is. But so Tiffany, what do you think? um, So the type of work that you're doing, so you actually, Do you actually roll out the programs in your organization? I do. So we have what is called a quality assurance uh, and performance improvement committee. Okay. And I head up that committee. We meet monthly um, with key members of the committee. And then we meet quarterly with the entire team, which includes just about every department of the hospital. Uh, We go over the statistics uh, from every month. We look at things that need to be changed. And then we figure out the priorities. So, you know, what do we need to work on first, second, third? And we come up with um, different interventions, different plans, things that we can implement, not just in women's services, but all over the hospital. Right. You know, sometimes we will need to get the lab involved because it, it, there's something having to do with um, lab work or maybe, you know, tests that need to come back sooner so that we can get results and go ahead and, and move on to uh, disease management. We are talking to the pharmacy sometimes because there are things that need to be done with medications that we need to get to more quickly. Um, We've done things recently like implementing uh, standard orders, which I'm a huge fan of, so that when someone is admitted to the labor and delivery unit, we can go ahead and immediately place orders for certain things. Right. We don't have 
wait around until something happens and then ask for those orders. So one of those things that we worked on recently is um, medication for hemorrhage. When you are in a delivery, whether it's a vaginal delivery or a cesarean section, and a hemorrhage begins, you don't want to have to stop and go pull out meds, put in an order, pull out meds, or override orders in the the Pixis or the medication dispensing machine. Uh, you want those things readily available to you. Right. And so figured out a way to go ahead and put those orders in on admission. And so we can have them at our disposal. So if we see a hemorrhage happening, okay, let's go ahead and give the meds immediately. No one has to leave the room. No one has to, you know, do any of that. that. Those are the types of things that we're thinking of and trying to do so that we can increase um, good patient outcomes. Yeah, that that's that's awesome. Hey, I was um, looking at the theme for this year and it says um, our, let me see, um, our black bodies belong to us restoring black autonomy and joy. So that is the black maternal theme. And I think about what you were saying with, you know, stop, don't touch me, you know, and our black bodies, because um, why, why is that so important? Because, you know, honestly, there's a lack of trust there in the healthcare system for, you know, black patients, um, BIPOC patients, there's a lack of trust. So um, what can you give us a little bit of history on that? about the black body? Why is that? I mean, somebody might say, well, what's the big deal about your body? It's a huge deal. I mean, if you go back to the days of slavery and black people were number one, taken, stolen right from their land, taken without their permission to a place where they did not speak the language. People did not look like them. They did not ask to come here. So they don't even know where they're at. And then once they get here, you're telling our ancestors that they have to work in certain ways, uh, in certain locations. You are taking ownership over these bodies. Families were literally torn apart. Babies taken away from their mothers and sold off. And so Black people in this country have not had a history of autonomy. We didn't start out that way, at least. You come down to, okay, now slavery has ended, but there are um, institutions being organized to keep Black people in check, right? So Black people still don't completely have control over their bodies. My parents are from Louisiana, and it is well known that you couldn't go certain places Mm -hmm. at certain times. When the sun was setting, you needed to come in Because we wanted to keep you alive through the morning, you know, and so black people couldn't even control where they went or when they went there through, I would say, most of the 50s for sure and into the 60s. Now we have um, Jim Crow laws that are going away. We have more rights, at least on the books, but we're still not completely free. We are being misused in medical research. We are being misused and mistreated by the police and law enforcement. We are receiving lackluster education. Um, We are not being allowed to purchase homes where we want to live. And if we do, we're paying a higher interest rate. We're not being able to get the mortgages and the loans that we need. You know, all of these things are a way to control people. And now with healthcare, you have a system where physicians and also nurses sometimes believe that we're the end-all be-all 
we know the body better than the person who's actually in their body and it is ours to control. So we tell people what to do instead of asking them what to do. We um, order medications and order different plans of care without coming together and collaborating with people around how they want to do things with their own body and in their own home. And it just, it really has to stop. Um, We've come to the point where Black women specifically are not allowed to really enjoy pregnancy. Right. I know so many people who get pregnant and they're terrified. Yes. They're scared that they won't live through the pregnancy. They're afraid that when they go into the hospital, they might not ever walk out. And unfortunately, that's a reality in this country. Um, and it just it, it has to end. Yeah, it does. And I mean, you I'm, I'm glad you brought that out because, um, you know, way uh, a while back, um, there was a young lady that came in and she um, she said, you know what, I want um, BIPOC. I want women of color to take care of me. And so, of course, that's kind of upsetting when you kind of hear things like that for some. And I had an opportunity to talk to her and she said, yeah, she said, yeah, I just saw the research. She's very, very well-spoken young lady, very intelligent. And she said, I, I just, my friend had a baby and she was not listened to. They kept her in pain. And I just want to feel safe when I have the baby. And, you know, when I left the room, I was so just like frustrated because I was like, no, this is supposed to be a time of joy in a time of like a miracle that this baby, you're going to have your first baby is supposed to be such a amazing experience. And here she is thinking about dying. She's thinking about, I just want to make sure that I make it out safe. And so, I mean, we have got to, something has got to shift here. Something has got to change. And so, you know, I'm so excited that you're in the position that you're in. I really am because I can see some things really transpiring and to be able to really affect the nation, to be honest. So um, what do you think, Tiffany? So if we can, what are some key things that you think that we could do right now to help move this needle over on the positive side to make sure that our black and brown moms are taken care of better. Let's talk about some of that now. Uh, I think some of the things we can do have to do with education and making sure that these moms know what to expect. Um, They know what's normal and what's abnormal before they ever step foot in a hospital. Yes. Uh, I think that having, giving them the ability to, be well-educated and give real informed consent. You know, we use that term informed consent, but it's oftentimes not as informed as it should be. Allowing them to be knowledgeable so that they can provide informed consent for the different uh, procedures that they may have um, and just the different interventions that we do. I think that's number one. So placing the ball back in the court of the people who are actually giving birth. Um, Another thing that we can do is to um, have different types of healthcare providers. So we know that midwives are fantastic, right? right. They're, they're wonderful. And midwives have better outcomes with their birthing people. We, we've known this for many years. However, a lot of times you'll have pushback from different physician organizations that don't want to see advanced practice nurses um, doing this work. 
And my thought is, hey, there's enough pie to go around. Having more midwives or nurse practitioners or nurse anesthetists or whatever does not take away from physician practice. There are still tons of maternal care deserts. There are places where people are driving upwards of 50, 75, 100 miles to receive care during their pregnancy. Adding to the number of people who can care for those women is not a bad thing. Right. And it's that we should be supporting. I would also like to see a lot more support of birth centers. Um, I've done some work around this, some research around this, and we know that people do better in birth centers where the environment is a lot more like home environment, where they can eat and they can move around, where they can um, just enjoy the the beauty of giving birth without such a medicalized experience. Right. You know this. And so moving birth out of hospitals and into facilities where um, there can be more natural and and unmedicated and um, births just without so much intervention, I think that would be wonderful. Now, of course, we need hospitals, right? I work at a hospital. I think hospitals are necessary. There are women who are going to develop chronic conditions during pregnancy that need a higher level of care. So, yes, we still need hospitals, but everybody doesn't need to deliver in a hospital. Everybody does not to does not need to give birth at the hands of a physician. Um, And then I'm just trying to think anything else. I mean, I think those are. I think those are good. Those those are really good. I think uh, the only thing that I probably would, and you actually hit that already, but I think one of the things that I found that, um, you know, we talk about cultural competence and cultural humility. Cultural competence, I can know. I mean, you can know something and then not do it. So um, just having that, I mean, when I did my project that, Cultural humility piece was so huge and I found such a marked difference once I trained them about it because I introduced to them a clinical coaching tool. So before you get into a challenging conversation with a patient that's diverse, it makes you check yourself and ask yourself five questions, you know, so you can see if you're like, you know, you're already judging and things like that. But it was it was such a significant shift in perspective. Um, when I did the results, but so I think like the communication piece is so critical, and then communication across the continuum, continue. yes. because you know, like say you're dealing with somebody that you know may have had some drugs in their history or whatever, instead of like judging them and not giving them the information that you're going to need, just like simple stuff, like if you know that you've had you've had drugs in the past than just communicating with them when they come into their, hey, this is what you can expect when you get over to the hospital. Right. So that when you get to the hospital, you won't like blow a gasket because, oh my gosh, they're asking me to do A, B, and C. If you would have talked to me earlier on, then I would have been expecting that to happen and it wouldn't be, wouldn't be such a traumatic event that happens. So that's what I found, a lot of lack of communication and really our responsibility as a healthcare provider is to give you all of the information, the risk and the benefits of everything versus us assuming that the person knows what's going to happen, especially once you get into the inpatient setting. So I found that in that in my um, my my project that that was like a real huge thing that many patients were not informed about what to expect. 
Absolutely. And I mean, we're talking about care in the hospital, but one thing I can add is doing more to provide care after birth. Yes. So a third of the women who are dying because of uh, pregnancy-related issues die after they go home in the communities that they live in. Yes. We need to be more serious and more aggressive about seeing these women once they deliver. We're really good about prenatal care. Yeah. You know, coming in every month and then once you reach a certain point in your pregnancy, it's every week. We're really, really good about that. But we're not so good about what happens when they're discharged and they go home. Um, waiting six to eight weeks to see someone after you've had a baby is a little bit absurd. It's interesting that we want to see the baby back in three to five days usually. But the mom, what she's delivered, it's, oh, you're OK. We'll see you in six weeks. No, they need to be followed up at the same rate at which they were being followed while they were still pregnant. Um, I think this is important. And in places like Texas, where I live, we don't allow women who have recently given birth to have insurance for long enough. Texas is the Texas is number one in uninsured residents. Right. So we have the highest population of uninsured residents here. About 50 percent of the women who deliver in Texas are uninsured. And so they're getting supplemental insurance while they're pregnant. At about two months after they deliver, insurance is gone. And so now they're back to being uninsured. Well, we like to follow up women with, we like to follow up the pregnancy with data for at least a year. We know that these deaths occur in high numbers throughout the first year. Why are women not being allowed to have insurance where they can go see a provider regularly throughout that first year? You know, yeah. that's something trying to change. These are the types of things that we have to do. We can't just think about what happens when they're inpatient. Right. What happens when they're discharged and they go home? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. What, what a wonderful conversation. So insightful. Um, is there anything else, Tiffany, that you would like to share with our audience? Just the reality of both maternal and neonatal death. Um, we tend to see more neonatal deaths in maternity or women's services, but maternal deaths are a really hard thing to bounce back from. Yes. Um, I've had one of my own and it was not easy as the nurse taking care of that woman. Um, it was not easy to see her leave this earth and then to try to go on and work afterwards. Um, it was very emotionally draining. And that's what initially sparked my interest in advocating for women so that we weren't, I don't want to say we're killing them, but essentially, so if we weren't killing them in labor. Now, there are things that happen sometimes that we can't control, right? There's your amniotic fluid embolus or just things that happen. But a lot of this is preventable. A lot of these things we know how to treat. We know how to manage. We're just not doing it in a timely manner. And so that needs to change because no woman should get pregnant, have a baby, and not live long enough to see that child grow up. Right. That's a travesty. And yeah. we, we just have to do better. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I just want to thank you so much for being on the show again. Uh, your insight is really valued, and I'm so appreciative of all the work that you're doing. And thank you so much for coming back so that we can kind of unpack this 
conversation for this week in particular. I know this is a lifelong journey for me, and I know it is for you too, whatever I can do to help support. I'm totally all the way there. So I just thank you for all of the work that you're doing in your region for um, Black Mamas, color. I mean, BIPOC moms. We really need your type of um, just professionalism and your insight and uh, the research that you've done and just all of the work that you're doing. I'm so in deep gratitude for the gift that you are to humanity. So thank you so much, Tiffany. Um, last words, and then we'll close out. Do what you can to save black moms. Yeah. We need them. Yes. We need them. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining the podcast. When the Moment Chooses You is a bi-weekly podcast where I not only discuss my own passion and quest for responding to those destiny moments, but I will also be sharing inspiring stories, tips, and tools as we navigate this journey of life together. As you can see, I will also be interviewing amazing guests and risk takers with stories that seize the moment and transform their lives and those around them. My hope is to share my passion and to build a community around creating destiny moments because every heartbeat matters. Find me on social media and I'd love for you to subscribe to my YouTube channel, like and share as much as you want to. Thank you so much. And what will you do when the moment chooses you?